Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. We are Sirius XM Progress. This is Channel 127. I am John Fugelsang. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And for the next three hours, we'll be coming at you with empathy, facts, history, music, something resembling comedy, and your calls all night long, 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT is our number. I hope you've had a great day so far. Thanks to all the great audience who came out to see our shows in Massachusetts and the Berkshires on Friday night. Chris and Thea, I meet so many people who come up to me and say, I'm a day walker, and they come to these live shows, and I never meet them in New York City because people in New York City don't drive cars everywhere. So thank you to everybody who came up and said lovely things. It's a pleasure to have you. Tonight's a really good show. Chris Hauselt, our executive producer, is running this thing out of South Carolina. The brilliant Thea Harper and I are running this thing out of Manhattan. We come to you high from the Howard Stern Tower, 268 floors above Gotham, in a completely empty building. There's no one in this building, and we're here because that's the dark side of hybrid remote work. 866-997-4748 is our number. 866-997-GRIT. We would love to hear you. It's a terrific show tonight. We're going to have Professor Corey Brechneider in a few moments talking about Donald Trump's very inflammatory day under oath. Denora Getachu of Do Something is going to be here to talk about Gen Z and millennial voting both tomorrow and uh, a year from now. On this date, in 1861, Jefferson Davis was elected as the first president of the Confederacy. So happy anniversary to all you Trump supporters in the party of Lincoln who celebrate that. It was 13 years ago tonight, friends, Tammy Baldwin became the first openly gay politician to be elected to the United States Senate. Not the first openly closeted one. We got lots of those still. Happy birthday to a few friends of this show. Maria Schreiber, uh, the great Corey Glover of Living Color has a birthday today. Ethan Hawke, a friend of this show. Tandy Newton, a friend of this show. And, uh, of course, the wonderful, magical, and deeply brilliant Trace Bill Yu of Mystery Science Theater 3000 has a birthday today. Donald Trump testified at his civil trial. He fought ferociously with Judge Engeron at several points amidst his angry, rambling, defensive answers. In other words, the leader of teabaggers got a little testy. Tens of thousands of people took to the street in Washington, D.C. on Saturday, demanding an immediate ceasefire to the Israel-Gaza war. The U.N. is now calling Gaza a children's graveyard. The White House says the death toll in Gaza has surpassed 10,000. That's the American figure, not the figure that the... Palestinian health authorities given. Russia has stepped up bombing runs over Ukraine, taking advantage of the fact we're all watching another war someplace else. There are 12 days until the government runs out of money, brothers and sisters, and election day is tomorrow in a handful of states. Now, we always say around these parts that state and local elections affect our lives a lot more than who wins the presidency. The stakes are actually high for the entire nation in all four of the big election contests that'll be happening this week in Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, 
and Mississippi. This is what election 2023 is looking like. Virginia, their legislature, it's kind of up for grabs. They're having off-cycle elections for governor and for the state legislature. Republicans are trying to hang on to the House of Delegates. They're trying to flip the state Senate, which the Democrats now control. And if they can do that, they will control the Senate and the legislature and the governor's office, which means more restrictions on abortion, more changes to school curriculum that do what very, very right-wing people want to see. A lot of people are saying they're not going to turn out. A lot of people say they don't even know who's running. I mean, this happens all the time when you're having off-off-year legislative races. So this means in Virginia, it's all going to come down to which party's base is more activated. And we know conservatives, the status quo is generally more organized. However, how much anger will there be about abortion rights in Virginia? Democrats have been screaming about this in the state that if they flip the state Senate, it is going to turn Virginia into the next Florida because the Republicans will have the control of all state government. Democrats are hoping to maybe flip the state legislature to the blue column by taking advantage of the Republicans who are supporting Glenn Youngkin's 15-week abortion ban, which does have exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. The makeup right now in the Virginia House is 52 to 48. So to gain control, the Democrats have to flip three seats. Now, Republicans are saying nationwide, the polling shows most people support a 15-week ban, and Youngkin's is popular. But we've seen all across this country voters rejecting any efforts to impose stricter abortion regulations after the Supreme Court gave Dobbs. So what Virginia does tomorrow could really be a bellwether for parties for 2024. So many are waiting to see whose voters are more motivated to come out. Now in Ohio, it's ground zero in the fight. Democrats are rallying behind a ballot measure, it's called Issue 1, that would create a constitutional right for citizens of Ohio to have an abortion. In other words, the government can't force American citizens to be pregnant if they don't want to be. Issue 1 would protect an individual's right to, quote, make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions free from any interference by the state. And it would allow abortion bans after the point of fetal viability. But there'd have to be an exception if the doctor says it's necessary to protect the patient's life or health, which most Americans agree with. This one's kind of hard to tell how it's going to go. I mean, the abortion rights advocates are playing offense on this one, not defense. They're trying to overturn some of the state's current abortion regulations. It's been a really hard fight, but this is a chance now to show Ohio, the purplest of purple states could be a state that respects women's reproductive freedoms. And, you know, activists are very encouraged after seeing what happened in Kansas and Kentucky over the last year. And polls show that abortion as a right, like it was under Roe, is a popular concept in Ohio. I mean, Republicans tried to raise the threshold to pass a constitutional amendment in Ohio a few months ago. We talked about this on the air. I have an initiative from 60%, from 50%. And that failed badly. Even the 15 counties in Ohio that went for Trump in 2020 voted that down. Abortion opponents are successful in court because they requested the summary of the amendment would replace the word fetus with unborn child. It's going to happen tomorrow. The prediction is this will pass. People will turn out to protect abortion rights in Ohio. It's kind of weird to see this happening, but let's talk about Kentucky with their popular Democratic governor. I don't understand it. I love Kentucky. But I still can't understand how a state that went so dramatically heavy for Trump that has, as their senators, Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell, would ever elect a Democratic governor. But 
this guy, Andy Bashir, he's just folksy and likable, and he's looking for a second term, and he may get it. He's going up against Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who is best known around the nation because he's the guy who had that response to the murder of Breonna Taylor in her home in a police raid in Louisville three years ago. He's the guy who labeled the police action uh, and killing as justified. So Andy Bashir is popular because he handled the COVID pandemic really well, and he's brought a lot of national investment into the state thanks to Biden's infrastructure bill, and he supports abortion rights, which they like in Kentucky, even though they're right wing. Daniel Cameron, well, Donald Trump's endorsed him. So this will be a real test of how powerful Donald Trump is in that state. It's also interesting because Cameron is African-American. He'd be the first black governor of Kentucky, and he's really right wing, and he was really okay with the state's murder of Breonna Taylor. I know, it's nuts. But again, Andy Bashir has campaigned against the Republican legislature's passage of one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country. In fact, Cameron came out and said he would support amending the state law to allow more exceptions. So that'll be really amazing. If Andy Bashir can get reelected in an off-off year, I mean, it'll show that abortion rights can win even in red states. And then there's the Mississippi race for governor. That's the fourth big the fourth of the big state battles tomorrow. And it's all about corrupt white people in power. Tate Reeves, their governor, he's been in this welfare scandal you've heard a lot about with Tom Brady. $77 million in state funds that were intended for needy families were stolen and transferred to pet projects of people like Brett Favre, who claims he didn't know it was welfare funds. The same guy, Tate Reeves, has refused to allow Medicaid expansion into the state. He's claiming that won't save our hospitals that are going broke now, but... It's literally turning free money down for sick people in your state because they're poor. So millions of poor people and rural people in Mississippi don't have adequate access to affordable health care. And too many of them don't vote. But maybe, maybe, I, it's too much to believe Mississippi would elect a Democrat. But have you seen the guy running? Brandon Presley? Distant, distant, distant relative of Elvis Presley? Mississippi for a long time has had this system. That's sort of like the Electoral College, where anybody who wins the statewide race has to also win the vote of the state's electors. It's Jim Crow bullshit, and it's there for one reason, to dilute the black voting power in the state. And they got rid of that. This time, it's going to be one person, one vote. They made it harder to rig it against black voters. I know it's not much, but every bit counts in democracy. Also, for a long time, Mississippi's had a a lifetime voting ban of convicted felons which some experts believe affects around 10% of Mississippi's voting age population. And surprise, surprise, it disproportionately affects African-Americans and keeps them from voting. That's according to the Sentencing Project. That case is on appeal, but for now, those who are banned for life because of their felonies can still vote because a court in Mississippi struck down the law. The only thing is, do they know? Mississippi doesn't exactly do a lot of get-out-the-vote talk. Now, in the midst of all this, Democrats are reeling in panic because of this New York Times Siena College poll that came out over the weekend showing Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden in five of the six swing states that were tested. And obviously, if those numbers hold up for a year and these guys are the two nominees, well, then this poll is the absolute truth that Donald Trump will be president again. Cue the freakouts from the Democrats. Uh, David Axelrod hinted that Joe's got to go. Bill Kristol, who is not a Democrat, was still talking about, you know, Biden should go. 
<laughs> he said it. And Dean Phillips, of course, well, you know what? Can we just say screw what Dean Phillips says? He's thirsty. Of course, he's going to whatever. The survey shows that the coalition that Joe Biden got elected on may be fraying a bit. The demographic groups that packed Joe Biden by landslide margins three years ago are now up for grabs. Voters under 30 go for Joe Biden by only one percentage point. His lead among Hispanic voters is down to single digits. And while women still like Biden better, men like Trump by twice as large a margin. Black voters are now registering 22% for Republicans in these six swing states. <laughs> really? Only three out of four black people are still voting Democrat? Wow, it looks like Trump's getting their vote. I'm sorry. I Look, I, it's serious and Democrats have to take it seriously. Um, I'm still allowed to make fun of the panic over it. You know, the, and the poll did test Vice President Harris, who would do about as well as Joe Biden would. And again, Joe Biden is proud of his accomplishments, and he has a lot. I wasn't a Biden guy, but I'm amazed at how much this guy has gotten done with a very divided Congress. And Donald Trump is, of course, a racist, rapist, unhinged, lunatic demagogue uh, who doesn't give what we call a goddamn about democracy. So it's scary. Especially because Trump and his allies are already mapping out their plans for using the federal government to go after his enemies. He's already said, and we'll talk about this with Professor Brett Schneider later, he wants to go after John Kelly. He wants to use the government to go after Bill Barr and Ty Cobb, his former lawyer, and the former Joint Chiefs Chairman, General Mark Milley. He literally wants to use government to put people in jail that he doesn't like. <laughs> and of course, he's glorifying insurrectionist prisoners. And again, it's scary. If you really think that Biden only leads Trump by one point among young voters, if you really think that Hispanic voters are going to flock to Trump, if you really believe that next year Donald Trump's going to get a quarter of the African-American vote, I mean, okay, Donald Trump could win next year and the GOP will rally around him, even if he is a convicted felon. And I'm not here to spin this poll as good news for the Democrats, but it's not the end of the world for the Democrats. I mean. Poll's kind of bullshit. Can we just take a moment back from the panic wall and just acknowledge that this poll, like all polls, eh, a little bit bullshit. And in the last few years, polls have been less trustworthy than ever. Now, again, here's an interesting thing. Number one, Joe Biden's proven he can beat Trump. He's already done it. But number two, in this New York Times-Siena College poll that everyone's freaking out about because Biden's leading in the six swing states. I mean, excuse me, Donald Trump is leading in six swing states. It turns out that is 91 felony charges in four different jurisdictions haven't really hurt him among voters in the background states. They don't care. But, and this is a tiny little headline buried in the article, if Donald Trump is convicted of these crimes and sentenced, which he will be, around 6% of the voters in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, 6% of them all say they would switch their votes to Biden. That would be enough to decide the election in all of the swing states. Boom. Okay, and, and again, let's also talk about the abortion issue because Democrats are going to be leveraging that issue to huge advantages. We've already seen it happen. Women voters outnumber male voters. 53 to 47% margin in the last presidential election. That means 10 million more women voted for president than men did. So think about how that plays out now that abortion rights have been banned by the Supreme Court at the federal level. Donald Trump won Florida by 3.4%, about 370,000 votes he beat Biden by. 
but about 600,000 more women than men vote in Florida. And that was before Dobbs. So if just some of those women flip, that's going to make it a lot closer. Think about that. The swing states, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, North Carolina, Georgia, and Wisconsin, women coming out in favor of Democrats more than 2020. I mean, abortion is on the ballot symbolically in every state. So think about Minnesota and Vermont. I mean, they're going to have a tougher time going from blue to red like Republicans are hoping. And again, Florida and Texas may be closer to flippable. I'm not saying it's going to happen. David Frum, who I hate agreeing with on anything, says, you know, put this in perspective at The Atlantic. He quoted the headline from Nate Silver, November 3rd, 2011. Is Obama toast? Handicapping the 2012 election. Guys, here's the deal. The poll's scary, and all the media's telling you how scary it is. Oh my God, Morning Joe, they'd had a funeral there. If Biden is this far behind Donald Trump in the fall of 2024, I'll worry. And if Joe Biden's behind Donald Trump after Donald Trump is convicted of multiple felonies, I'll worry. And if Biden's behind Trump after another year of abortion horror stories comes out, yeah, I'll worry. But guys, how much you want to bet Trump's going to have to campaign in Florida next year? How much you want to bet they're going to get nervous enough to make Donald Trump campaign in Texas next year? See, 2024 is not about reelect Joe Biden. You for Joe Biden. It's not about that. It's about keeping Donald Trump out of the White House. That's what it's about. That's what people are voting on. It doesn't matter how much Joe Biden has achieved. It doesn't matter how nice a guy he is, how old he is, how not old he is. Polls were wrong in 2018. They were wrong in 2020. They were really wrong with the red wave of 2022. And it's the exact same bullshit right now. Allison Gill put up, she posted, when will folks realize it's a business? These polling companies make millions and the media cleans up on scaring you with the results. By the way, in this new poll by Noble Predictive, Joe Biden leads Trump by four points, and it showed that Biden is the strongest Democrat against Trump. Biden 48, Trump 44. The only Democrat more popular than Biden is Michelle Obama at 46% to Trump's 45%. Bernie Sanders would tie Donald Trump. And it shows how polling is all over the place. But Biden against Marianne Williamson, it's not even close. Biden against J.B. Pritzker, not even close against AOC, against Kamala Harris, against Elizabeth Warren, 60% to 25%. Against Bernie, it's 57% to 29%. If Hillary Clinton ran, Biden 54, Clinton 32. If Gavin Newsom ran, Biden 53, Newsom 27%. What I'm saying is, show me the Democrat that can get the electoral votes better than Joe Biden, and I'll be all on your side about replacing him on the ticket. But this is like every other election, my friends. If there's high turnout, Democrats win. If there's low turnout, Republicans win. They're not voting for Biden. They're voting against Trump. And the Republicans are going to be pushing this meme that Joe Biden's as bad as Trump. They're going to try to divide Biden's base as big as they can. They're going to push him to defend Israel, no matter how many Palestinian deaths, because they know only Democratic voters give a damn about Palestinian deaths. If Ron DeSantis was leading the GOP field by 50% right now, then I'd be nervous. But this poll's not a wake-up call. We know how bad it is. We know how much we've got to rally. We know how much we've got to get the vote out and remind people what's at stake. we got a year. And journalists and TV news performers, they might want Joe Biden, but the people who own the companies that own the media outlets, they want their Trump ratings. They want their Trump tax cuts. They want their Trump policies on not pursuing corporate polluters or crooks. They want their Trump anti-labor policies. And they see a president, even if he's 80, walking a union picket line, and they panic. Friends, 
How many union stories do you see on the corporate news? Even the corporate news you like. There's going to be a meteor onslaught against Biden. Because the best thing about Joe Biden is how much billionaires hate him. In closing, as with all polls, this is not a poll of random Americans like they say. Remember, it's a poll of random Americans who still pick up landline phones. And it's a poll of random Americans who pick up their cell phones when they don't know who the caller is. That's who's saying Trump is great right now. We want to know what you think. We're at 866-997-4748. We'll be right back with the great Professor Corey Brechneider. This is Progress. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. Tell me everything with John Fugelsang on Sirius no XM Progress One Twenty Seven. To be the bad man, to be the sad man. Behind blue eyes. 52 years ago today. No one knows what it's like. A song written by Pete Townsend for his Lifehouse project was released as the second single from the Who's fifth album, Who's Next. It is now considered to be one of the Who's greatest songs and one of our good friend Pete Townsend, first ever guest on this show at this time slot, one of his greatest pieces of songwriting. And what nobody knew at the time was it was all written about our next guest, Corey Brettschneider, professor <laughs> in the poli department at Brown University. He was the inspiration for the Who's Greatest Song, and he's the inspiration for our greatest segment. Corey writes great analysis of our politics for Politico, the New York Times, and Time. You can get his book, The Oath in the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents, at your favorite bookstore. Professor Brettschneider, it's always a great pleasure to welcome you back. Thank you very much for being with us. Thanks, John, and glad to uh, learn that little bit of who trivia. It's all about you, sir. Um, <laughs> Corey, we, I, I, I so want to talk to you about Donald Trump's day on the stand, but before we even get there, can I talk about this really scary article in the Washington Post that came out today? Because we've all grown up reading about uh, Nixon's enemies list, but reading that Trump and his allies have began mapping out very specific plans a, a year before the election of how they're going to use the federal government and taxpayer money to punish people who criticized him if he gets a second term. It's it's a little bit scary. It's it's scary that this even leaked out. Um, wh- what do we know about this? Uh, you know, it's really a warning about what he'll attempt if he wins. And one thing we've learned about Trump is you have to listen to him when he says things. He's not just being hyperbolic. He really intends to do them. And what this article is about is his own plans and also heavy planning that's going on. And uh, among the names of people involved in this that are mentioned are Stephen Miller. And there are really two things that I find frightening. One is what you just mentioned, that he is really drawing up plans to try to prosecute enemies. 
and has no qualms. And he said this, too, that if Joe Biden is going to go after him, uh, that's not OK. But if the Democrats are going to do it, then he's going to do it as well. And, you know, at one point he, he, he gave an indication about how, which is that he'll tell his attorney general to just make it up. And he'll pick the target first and make up the um, make up the um, way of getting that person after. Uh, in the article, they talk yeah. about the use of special prosecutors to go against opponents. I found that particularly chilling because my research for this uh, new book that I'm that's coming out, I learned that that's exactly what Nixon's plan was, yep. was to use special prosecutors in that way. Uh, so, you know, that's one half of it. And, 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 and if I may, Corey, if I just add one thing yeah. to it, Donald Trump said at a campaign stop in New Hampshire last month, you know, when he's pretending that he's a victim and that this is Joe Biden going after him, he said, yeah. uh, this is third world country stuff. Arrest your opponent. And that means I can do that, too. So he's, I love know, I love that acknowledgement. Yeah. It's like, you know, he knows it's third world stuff and that's what he wants to do. And it's scary. I mean, oh, go, go ahead, Corey. Sorry. I, I was just going to say that. You know, when you combine that with the other half of the story, which is about the use of the military and how he intends to use the military through the Insurrection Act to suppress dissent, uh, those two things, going after your political opponents using special prosecutors and using the Department of Justice and using the military to quash dissent on the streets, I mean, that does amount to, uh, you know, a wannabe dictatorship. Yeah. And it resembles a lot of Latin American regimes where what looked like democracy collapses into dictatorship. And I think that that really is his goal, a, a planned military dictatorship. Of course, if he could live another four years, I don't imagine a free and fair election is in the works because, yeah. uh, you know, anything that doesn't result in him winning is rigged. So you can't allow that again. Uh, we're talking, uh, you know, really scary stuff. I'll say one other thing. You know, last time when this happened, when he was elected, the thought was he doesn't really understand the system and there are ways of stopping him because he's so incompetent. And I think that was partly true, but that's not true anymore. He really does understand the system. He knows, uh, and I'd like to talk more about it at some point, the Insurrection yeah. Act and how it works and how to use it. And he knows that if you put your cronies at the top, top echelon of the Department of Justice and tell them to do what you want, you basically have control over federal prosecutions and can go after your enemies. Yep. Uh, so, so what scares me is not just that this is off the wall, but that it could work. It could. And, you know, I remember a lot of right wing people encouraging Donald Trump three years ago to use the uh, the the um, Insurrection Act against yeah. uh, demonstrators after the murder of George right. Floyd in the summer of 2020. And he never did it. And T Donald Trump has done a lot of speeches afterwards saying he really wishes he had done more to beat up uh, protesters and uh, and abuse them other than firing tear gas outside a church. But the article that the, the article in The Washington Post terrified me because it talked about how these right wing think tanks are developing something called Project 2025, where they will deploy the military domestically under the Insurrection Act and finally give Trump his dream of sicking the military on our own people. I, I guess they don't remember far back enough to recall Kent State, Corey. Right, right. Or they, you know, they draw different lessons from it. They think, oh, the problem with Kent State. Uh, was that we didn't go far enough in suppressing the protests that came after it, that we allowed, you know, these uh, children to become martyrs rather than the, to see them as uh, uh, opponents of Nixon who should have been uh, suppressed more and, and those on their side. You know, his lesson 
all of these have such parallels with Nixon and his lesson is always that Nixon was too weak. He didn't go too far, yep. far enough. He wasn't yeah. ruthless enough. On the Insurrection Act, I'll, I'll say, you know, one frightening thing about it, and he was continuing to threaten to use it, for instance, in, the, um, in, in addition to the George Floyd protests, the protests that were going on in Oregon, he, he continually flirted with it. And at the time, I really looked into how this thing is structured. I should say, too, you know, it serves noble purposes. It's what Eisenhower used uh, in Little Rock to call out the troops and to, uh, to yeah. insist against the Southern segregationists governors on integration. Uh, so that's a good use of it. But, you know, it, it essentially trumps the posse comitatus uh, principle that says you can't use the military domestically if it's, if mm-hmm. it's invoked. Now, in principle, you sh- can't use any act of Congress in order to suppress free speech. The, the Constitution is superior to any act of Congress like the Insurrection Act. But in practice, who's going to decide how to balance the Insurrection Act with exactly. the right of free speech. That, that's the, his Supreme Court. And I just really worry about them as somehow a bulwark against uh, this president. What they continually did during the Trump era was to say presidential power is different and to prioritize it above the Constitution. The worst example of that, of course, is that travel ban case where even though it was blatantly unconstitutional, they upheld the travel ban based on a statute that granted the president power and matters of immigration over mm-hmm. and above the equal protection clause and uh, the religion clauses, uh, they might do that again, too. They'll say, oh, the Insurrection Act, you know, yeah, it might be limited in all sorts of ways, but presidential power has to be respected. And, you know, there's a, 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 a constitutional lawyer uh, quoted in the Washington Post who's saying, oh, well, none of this is constitutional. It's a shame. Trump is a fool. And of course, that's true on one level, except the Constitution's now interpreted through his justices. And of yeah. course, I'm talking about Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh and, uh, and Barrett. And uh, do I trust that they're really going to say what I think the Constitution or any of my fellow professors think it means? Or do I, I think that they're going to defer to him? I think they're going to defer. So we're in real trouble, John. I mean, I, I've, I'm reading this just as brought to the forefront how dangerous this moment in history uh, is. And we're so exhausted of it that, and I'll include myself in it, that we don't want to believe uh, that we're facing you yeah. know, the end of democracy. But yeah. we are. Yeah, I, and I, I, I know. Um, but then I look and see, like, the fact we always forget is that these guys are really stupid, Corey. We have to remember, <laughs> they're really stupid. Jeffrey Clark who Donald Trump tried to make AG, who, who tried to get his superiors to investigate crimes that didn't exist, who tried to get state officials to submit phony certificates to an right. electoral college, who's charged in Fulton County with their state racketeering law. He's apparently in charge of Project 2025's Insurrection Act project. <laughs> like, they're literally putting a guy who failed the last time and is going to jail for the last attempt to steal an election in charge of this one. So I, I do draw some hope from it and the fact that I don't really believe the Washington Post poll, I mean, the New York Times poll that came out over the weekend. But just as a constitutional scholar, how do you <laughs> feel when you hear people talk incredibly about a president deploying the military for domestic law enforcement? What should people think when they hear a benign-sounding phrase like that? I think that, you know, as much as I want to, I can say over and over again why it's an improper use of the Insurrection Act that would be a violation of the right of free speech. 
um, his sort of main constitutional lawyers in his corner, people like John Eastman, who was on 60 Minutes, who designed essentially the, the attempted self-coup on January 6th. I could say how stupid they are and how ridiculous, and I, I'd be right. <laughs> and you'd be right to say that, too. But my worry is that this time they've figured out uh, they care about power and they're not so stupid that they can't see their prior mistakes and that they can't see the vulnerabilities in our system. And stupid people with power can do a lot of harm You're right. under our system. And I want to just stress, too, all the power in our current system, and this is the fault of both parties, including President Biden, who's done absolutely nothing to really fix the problem. But the power lies in the presidency. And whoever commands that office in the modern world, what Schlesinger famously called the imperial presidency, has just enormous amount of might at their disposal. And, you know, we've had efforts in the past to try to rein in that power, but we're not in a stage in history in which there really is a lot reining it in. And uh, so, yeah, complete moron, more than that, a megalomaniac who's pernicious and sadistic. Uh, can can if he gets power, and of course, I'm talking about Trump. Uh, I just I, I don't know how we're going to stop him. We'll try. Of course, <laughs> we'll do well, everything we can. I mean, you know, but Corey, it's they're be different this time. Well, it'll be different this time. And Biden's not going to have the same advantage he had last time of being the, the new guy who can put together this coalition. The New York Times wants you to believe that all black people are voting for a racist now. Again, the New York Times poll, I telling everyone, Corey, it's a poll of people who answer their landline phones. And a poll of people who answer their cell phones when they don't know who the caller is. I don't consider that a comprehensive cross-section of Americans, to to be honest with you. Yeah, and of course, before we get to this nightmare that I'm talking about, part of the reason for us talking about it is uh, not just to get the people who we're talking to to vote, but to mobilize us to really get out in a way that we never have before and stop this want to be tyrant. You got um, this that. Is not a joke and it's not a drill. So also there's the small matter of Donald Trump being a convicted felon most likely by the time <laughs> the next election day comes around and today yeah. was a day of history. If you'd waited your whole life to see Donald Trump have to go under oath, well, you don't get to see it. It's not on camera and it's only about this one real estate fraud trial in New York that he's already guilty of, but I want to play a quick clip before Donald Trump showed up in his civil fraud trial. Here's New York Attorney General Letitia James earlier today reminding reporters she will not be blinded by his bullshit. This morning, Mr. Trump will take the stand in our trial against him, the Trump Organization and other defendants. Mr. Trump has repeatedly and consistently misrepresented and inflated the value of his assets. And before he takes the stand, I am certain that he will engage in name-calling and taunts and race-baiting and call this a witch hunt. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters are the facts and the numbers. And numbers, my friends, don't lie. Thank you. Uh, I wish she had put some numbers down in a bet on that because everything yeah. she said would happen, happened. He literally called yeah. it a political witch hunt, exasperated yeah. the judge. Um, w- tell us what you th- thought of what you've heard so far. It was really a remarkable series of public tantrums, and apparently it was all done by 11 a.m. this morning, Professor. 
I mean, you know, what makes this historic is that up until now, we've seen all of this behavior outside the courtroom, but he's pretty much quiet inside the courtroom and does what a defendant is told to do, which is to shut up or if you're going to take the stand, you know, I'm sure what he was told to do was to answer in a straightforward manner and not be too combative. Uh, and that's not what happened. I mean, he really, you know, went in for calling Letitia James, the attorney general, a hack. He turned on the judge. He showed frustration, as his lawyer did, outside the courtroom at least. And uh, he, But he also, you know, what, what great uh, prosecutors, and, and this is civil prosecution, of course, do, is is they draw out the witness, and yes. especially an arrogant witness, uh, and that's what he was. And so, you know, one of the claims of the defense was, well, he wasn't really involved in all this. And you saw uh, Don Jr. saying, oh, this is just stuff that the accountants do. We don't really do this. And no, that's not what he was saying. He was saying, yeah, I said that was too inflated. I said that was too high. That was too low. He showed himself to be an active contributor yes. to the fraud. And, you know, the judge has already found that there was fraud. Now there's just a question of what the penalties are going to be. And and here he goes. And what, you know, here he, he, this was his moron side because everything in his self-interest would say not to do this, but he couldn't help it. I mean, he played instead to his political crowd and sacrificed, you know, probably his children and and the organization. And, you know, that's just how he is. It's a true narcissist on the stand doing exactly what a dream, uh, you know, his, his own attorney said he was a dream witness. I think it was really a dream witness for the attorney general's office because I mean, he just yeah. showed himself to be, uh, you know, maniacal, involved, and, and really uh, uh, <laughs> not just that it was a fraudulent set of acts, but this is a fraudulent person at his heart. I mean, I assume that Donald Trump has a sense that he knows what he's doing. He's setting the tone for his future courtroom appearances. But man, Professor, they just let him talk and he just incriminated himself. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it looks like he may have been very calmly guided into a confession of fraud under questioning from the attorney general's lawyer today. They were referring to page 105 of a Deutsche Bank term loan agreement. And the lawyer said, did you sign this guarantee? Trump said, yes. And the lawyer asked Trump, can you see that it says in order to induce lending? And Trump again <laughs> said, yes. I mean, it seems that he admitted under oath that he was misrepresenting the value of his property deliberately to convince banks to loan him more money. Like, like he, as you pointed out, he's already been found guilty of doing this. This trial is just to see how much money he's going to have to pay and if the organization he inherited from his dad is still going to be allowed to exist anymore. Yeah, and, you know, if he was a decent person and cared about his kids, for instance, he would think about the future of this family business. And he would think about minimizing the damage. You know, in the past, of course, when they were accused, of trying, he and his father were accused of civil rights violations. They didn't go out screaming about how they're not guilty. They made an agreement. They came to a reasonable fine that would allow the organization to, to continue to exist, and they went on with their lives. And this time, that's just not the mode that he's in. He cares only about his legacy perception. And I think his, his followers, his, his MAGA cult, and uh, he's really willing to let everything else be burned to the ground. Now, one, my understanding is Ivanka hasn't testified yet. And when, when she sees this, I would think she might think, okay, you know, time to cut bait. This guy doesn't care at all. Yeah. About any of us. And and let's see, you know, how if she turns on the family. 
I mean, this was really going off the rails. I mean, it's really tragic this wasn't on camera. And I'm sure Donald Trump did it to brag that he did it and fundraise off it like he fundraises off every gag order violation. But at one point, Judge right. Engeron says, Mr. Kais, can you control your client? This is not a political rally. And <laughs> Trump's lawyer just pretty much gives him the finger and says, you're in control of the courtroom, not me. Like, they're daring this guy to revoke Trump's bail because they know if he got a weekend in jail for behaving badly, he'd raise a million dollars overnight. Well, that is my sense of the dynamic, that anybody else would have been held in contempt. And Trump knows that that's not going to happen, that this judge just wants to get through this trial without without any, you know, historic events. Like, it's already historic enough without without throwing him in prison. And that, of course, would rally the base that would enter the judge into this deep controversy of, of whether or not these are political prosecutions. He's trying to do anything to avoid that. Um, but, you know, another thing I, I was thinking is, of course, this was historic today, not not as major as it will be if he testifies in the criminal trials in Georgia or the either the Jack Smith trials in Florida or um, or the trial about January 6th. But I have to believe that at some point Trump is going to insist, of course, his lawyers will urge him not to, to testify in his own defense. And when you see what a bad mm. witness he Mm -hmm. is, and this was a, a foreshadowing of it. Correct. Uh, you know, are we going to have a you can't handle the truth moment in January 6th where he says, yes, you know, I, I, I was trying to start that riot. I did order the Proud Boys because, uh, you know, I'm the future of this country. I, I think we might. Like, he is that much of a self-involved person. He <laughs> so disrespects the rule of law. Maybe we'll get that that moment for the final movie of final scene of the of the Trump movie. And part of it is, you know, he believes he's going to he's going to win. He does. So, That's what know, this is all about, right? Think, why not? He <laughs> thinks he's going to win and make all of this go away. And and you know what? I mean, he probably has Russians and Saudis saying they're going to help him because they sure are. He's going to have right. a lot of international help. And his whole goal is he doesn't care about the trials. He's going to win the presidency. And somehow even the state cases will magically disappear. Right. Can you imagine Jack Nicholson, you know, the, the, the end of the alternative ending to a few good men where he becomes president of the United States <laughs> <laughs> and throws Tom Cruise into prison. Oh, I, I, I can't handle the lack of truth. He really can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, it's always a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much. I hope we've talked each other off the ledge a little bit tonight. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you, Corey, and keep up with all your many doings? Uh, you could pre-order uh, copies of The Presidents and the People, and uh, the subtitle is Five Leaders Who Threatened Democracy and the Citizens Who Fought to Defend It. So it's got some hopeful uh, parts I to it as well, wait. in addition to the threats. I loved your last book so much, Corey. It's always a great pleasure having you class up our show. Thank you so much. Everyone follow Corey on Twitter, even if he doesn't use it anymore. Follow him anyway, <laughs> and we'll see you next time, Corey. Thank you so much for joining us. See you, John. Quick break. We'll be right back with your calls in just a moment. This is Progress After Dark. Rank number 160 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. It's Public Enemy. This is what rap music used to sound like, children. Bring the Noise reached number 56 on the Billboard Hot R&B Hip Hop cha Songs chart. And of course, there was a very famous remix 
with the members of Anthrax. This song was a big hit because it was on the soundtrack of the movie Less Than Zero as well. But it was released as a single in 1987. It was the first song on the album It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. And the single, Bring the Noise, was released November 6, 1987, which the staff here tells me was 36 years ago. Thank you, Public Enemy. I'm John Fugel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. Let's go to the phones before our next break. Steph in San Diego, thank you so much for waiting. You're on Progress. Hello. 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 Hi. Hello. Hello. Hello there. Poundstone. Hello. Hey, John. Yes. Steph from San Diego. You know I love you so much I have to tease you. No worries. <laughs> Hello. Time listener. Uh, hello. What's up? Hello. I pushed the mute button. No. <laughs> I wanted to congratulate you. Just so much from the bottom of my heart. Wow. That uh, comb over Caligula, I first saw in my pay per view. Yeah. I was pissed because I couldn't watch till four o'clock the next day, by the way. And I didn't watch <laughs> it from Grandpa. I, I, here on the West Coast, you know, I could have driven up from San Diego, but it's like, I'm too tired. I'll watch it in the morning, brag into my friends like home. Not so far. Mm. I'm glad I didn't bring you. You missed quite a party. You missed quite a party. Got to tell you. Well, I'll volunteer. I'll go wherever. But no, um, next time you're in LA. Okay. But anyway, I don't like big crowds because I'm disabled. And I understand. All over. Quickly. So compliments on that. I think it's award winning, and I hope you do get an award somewhere. And if I can be helpful anyway, if not, I just for, the, for those who don't know what he's talking about, I did this Dr. Seuss poem called "The Trials of Comb Over Caligula," and we did a shortened version of it uh, at the big sexy liberal pay per view two weeks ago because. We put out a video of the whole version because the whole version was just way too long to do because it, it already ate up like half my set. But I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you. Well, I loved it. It was long, but you know what? It was watchable. You are absolutely <laughs> incredibly talented. Thank and you. someone I really look up to. It's a great and house. It to be someday, but unfortunately, I'm getting older, so I don't know if I have time to catch up with you. Well, okay. Uh, I uh, wanted to hear, you mentioned the name RuPaul on one of your shows recently. Yes. I could not. When Sirius XM back up, it's a whole other issue, which isn't your fault. But anyway, I couldn't find it again. It was something about you were sitting next to RuPaul or this or that. I forget. Do you recall oh, well, what it yeah, was? Yeah, I do. Well, well Ru- I was at VH1 when RuPaul, you know, did his talk show. And um, and so I, I used to see RuPaul. I was on that show a couple times, and you'd see RuPaul uh-huh. all the time. And, and um, I, I grew up in the, at the Duplex Cabaret when RuPaul was first making it big, and our, our headshots were hung on the wall next to each other. So I, I've always Great. kind of stalked Ru. But I think uh, I told the story. I was I was um, I had to do a, a, a segment for the release of the new Mac store in Soho one year when I was very young and I spent the whole day on a couch sitting in between RuPaul and Katie Lang. I'd love to find the footage from that because it was really funny. But uh, that was that was one of the more confusing days of my sexuality. He was the Mac spokesperson and they had RuPaul all over. That's right. But it turns out by a turn of fate and I won't go into all the details, but by having the courage to dress up kind of in scary drag at where I worked for Halloween where it was very, very conservative. I did not. Mm-hmm. Get first place. I did not get oh, no. second place Tragic. or even third. However, afterward, someone came up and said, You were robbed. You should have had first. <laughs> and then they go, Do you know who RuPaul is? I said, Who? We got to hit a break, Steph. This, this is in 94. Should I hold? Yeah. Uh, okay. You can hold. Okay. If you want to tell hold us the very end of the story, we got to hit a quick break. We'll be hold right hold back hold. after this. Hang All on. Right. We'll come right back Thank to your call God in a second. Peace. Don't go away. Mm-hmm. 
This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John saying. We're at 866-997-GRIT. Before we get to our guests, let's really quick go back to Steph in San Diego for the end of your RuPaul story. Go ahead. Hit me. Yeah, thank you so much. So I won the super prize and happened to get a connect with RuPaul. And I first met him when he was on the Arsenio Hall show as a just becoming popular doing Little Drummer Boy. I, I, what was it? Tower Records on Sunset. I think he mm-hmm. did the signing first. And um, I bought the cassette, <laughs> the drummer boy, by the way, and have the signed copy. So then, and I happened to be, I'm sorry, the only white guy in the audience. It was real cute because I had family on both sides. And it's like they pointed at us. And if anyone has a copy of that, advert that ad in between i want to show where they cut it off because you can find the video but you can't find the whole thing with that anyway so number so i got to meet him uh-huh. and then and of course it was fun driving to la and drive right into the studio like yeah. on the guest list. you know i've yeah. never done that before then of course he invited um just the nicest person in the whole world and i just have to shout out if he is on there <laughs> i mean he he seems to have been nicer to me what year is this just this is 1994 this story happened well i'm saying it would be easy to research if i'm terrible with memory but see he, it was around 90 because that's when i left ah, you know, it, okay see, but if you queried it for when arsenio hall did rupaul it's on youtube well you know what the google is your friend steph it's right there you can find out the exact time you, the, you well, experienced I, I this don't need to i got the pictures of us because after we went i think it's the Hotel Miramont or something on Sunset Boulevard <laughs> to his little cottage uh-huh. that Arsenio put him up on. I see. And it was fun. I got pictures around the Christmas tree. Very nice. Next of course, he comes out after being fabulous in Dragon. What does he have? A t-shirt of Tina Turner. You know. Don't. Anyway, that was back in 94. He was gorgeous. I was young and gorgeous. He is still gorgeous. I've always had some money, and he is now worth over $600 million, and I just feel like a complete... Failure. I'm, so I'm volunteering my time. Sorry about every... that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Having the pleasure of meeting them and having him being so kind well, changed my life and helped me get my life back. Well, right on. He's well, thank you. It's a lovely story. I, you know, I got to meet RuPaul a couple times, but your story's a lot better than mine. I, I bow down. We've got Vegas too. Don't worry. He invited someone well, that went to all of his shows up to his room. He is that nice of a person. Wow, I've never heard of a celebrity inviting a fan up to their hotel room before this conversation. Steph, it's a pleasure having you. I gotta, I gotta run, but I'm. I'm I gotta run. John. Invite me back as a guest for an activist that's just starting in metal and Yeah, I'm gonna need you to come out of your shell a little bit more before I can do that, Steph. Gotta need you to open up a little bit more. Vote, 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 and not independent or third party. All right, you got it. Thank you so much. 866-997-4748. We're going to get to your calls very shortly. Right now, I want to welcome a special guest to the show, uh, appearing for the first time. I'm very excited excited to talk to Denora Gitachu, who's an expert on Gen Z and millennial voters and CEO of DoSomething.org, which is America's leading hub for youth activism. And when we talk about the upcoming races, especially the races tomorrow in Ohio, Virginia, and Kentucky... What do they all have in common? Well, they're all of very keen interest to women voters and to young people as well. It's a great pleasure to welcome Denora Gitachu to Sirius XM. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Welcome. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Thank you for joining us. And, and let me ask you, how has your preparation been for Election Day tomorrow? No, I think it's an exciting time for, as we think about Election 2023 and what's at stake, right? We are 
really excited over here to do something to see that there are up to 8 million young people who will be eligible to vote for the first time in this election. And we're excited for them to claim their place as new voters and make their voices heard um, in elections across the country. We often spend much of our time talking about midterm elections and, and more importantly, or more excitingly, presidential elections. But the work of shepherding our democracy happens every year. And so we're excited that there will be elections, including a couple in key states around the country where young people will have a chance to make their voices heard, uh, to make sure that their elected officials understand what issues matter most to young people and what they want to see them do when they're elected to office. And I want to talk to you about those specific campaigns. But at first, let me ask a very basic kind of dumb question. What do you think the media tends to get wrong most frequently about Gen Z and millennial voters? That's such a great question. And it's one that I'm always excited to talk about oh, because there is this notion that young people are a monolith. I think that's the one thing that they get wrong is that they think that all young people and for us that do something, I should say, we're the home for young people and their activism. For 30 years, we've been helping young people go from being civically curious to civically committed by getting them to start with volunteerism and understand how they can get engaged in their community. And when we think about this, these current generations of young people, we're talking about Gen Z and Gen Alpha, right? So Gen Z as older uh, first-time voters and, mm -hmm. and young people before that Gen Alpha starting as young as 13-year-olds. I think when the media often talks about Gen Z and even millennials who are a little bit older um, as voters, they often talk about them as a group, right? Like all of them are doing X thing. Um, and I don't, you know, what our data shows us to do something is that that's not true. Young people, uh, like the rest of us, have very differing opinions about the current state of affairs in our society and what issues matter most to them. Um, and so I want the media to really dig under the hood of the sentiment of Gen Z as they come of age as voters and help them understand how they can make their voices heard in our election process by not just categorizing them or being quick to label them. Yes. You know, when our media talks about the voters who are coming out in greater numbers after the gutting of Roe v. Wade on the federal level by the Supreme Court, they always focus it on on women as a block of voters, but they never talk about Gen Z. They never talk about the fact that there's a lot of males in these demographics who care about women's reproductive freedom and that this is the generation that's being told right out of the gate, you're going to have fewer rights than your mothers and grandmothers enjoyed. That's such an important point to note, right? That we live in a world that is, as new generations of voters come of age, are more diverse, like, you know, completely represent the intersectional spectrum of identities. And those voters care a lot, though. I think the one thing they share, especially on the heels of the last three years, um, or I don't know, 10 years, however long we've been in this pandemic and coming out of it, Young people are very clear about the need for change and for it to be systemic in nature. And one of the things that Gen Z in particular has in common is they care a lot about access to healthcare and that their own safety and well-being, whether that's mental health, whether that's physical health, whether that's being uh, free of gun violence and violence in their communities is a pressing issue for Gen Z as they come of age. And that's across uh, males and females or those who identify on those spectrums. Young people are desperately seeking um, Healthcare that really speaks to their needs. And I think that's one of the things that if we're going to generalize, we should really dig under the hood of what is coming, what is happening in this moment that is making Gen Z care so much about their own healthcare and well-being in ways that may not have been as pressing for previous generations. 
So tell us a bit about your job. What is it like for do something <laughs> on the eve of an election, even an off-off election year like this one? You have so many different members in so many states. How do you begin to mobilize, say, people in Kentucky, where last fall the voters really shot down the Republicans' majority trying to have that amendment uh, outlawing abortion, and now the uncommonly popular Democratic governor, Andy Bashir is up for re-election tomorrow. How does do something go about mobilizing in a state like Kentucky? You know, what's important for us is when we're talking to members and, and we have members all over the United States as well as worldwide. But when we talk up to our members in the United States about what's at stake on Election Day, we're reminding them that it's important to make their voices heard right in every election. So I often don't speak just in terms of off your elections, because I don't I think the media, back to your first question, yeah. does a poor job of not emphasizing every single election. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's about it's almost like the gamesmanship, if you will, of elections. Like, here's the Super Bowl of elections coming in 2024. And it's like, well, the Super Bowl of elections happens every year. And so we at do something really want to make sure young people know that their voices count in every election. We have over 32,000 members in Kentucky. And what we're hearing from them is a little bit of what you said, right? They're concerned that we're living in a moment where as America becomes more diverse than it's ever been, that we are taking away rights from individuals as opposed to adding rights and making sure that all people, regardless of how they identify, feel protected and that they belong in America. And so I do think that's a sentiment that's going to carry through to this coming election. We don't know what the turnout will be, because if any of us could predict what the turnout would be, well, then we'd, you know, we'd have a lot of other things solved. Sure. And so you know, our hope is that when we encourage young people to always, as I like to say, participate in the full contact sport that is democracy, they are voting not only in the you know Super Bowl of election years, but they're voting in every election because they want to make sure they understand that their elected officials hear from them and that their elected officials understand what issues matter to them. And so, you know, from in many instances, it would do young people a disservice if they voted once and, and we're done. Right. And we're hearing a lot of that sentiment of like, well, I voted and nothing happened. And so our work at Do Something also has to be not also just playing into the, the meme or the rhetoric around the big elections, but actually making sure young people understand that the real work of making sure that the policy changes you want to see happen get enacted is engaging with your elected officials after they're elected, right? So yes, right. we want everybody to register to vote and go vote. We also want you to be there on the day after election day, six months after that, Thank and six you. more months after that. Thank you. Not just young people. This is how I feel about all voters. Uh, this is wonderful to hear because, I mean, in an off-off election year, obviously there'll be people who stay home and there'll be people in the state who maybe uh, aren't really big fans of either candidate for governor. I, I don't know if there's going to be a ton of young people who are going to want to go vote for Daniel Cameron, who is an African-American Republican who defended the police killing of Breonna Taylor. It seems like a great time to get engaged young people who care to show up at, during an election season when, let's face it, there's apathy among a lot of the adults. I mean, that's the important work that we all have to do, right, is making sure that one, that we understand how the electoral process works. And two, when we do that work with young people, in particular, the issues that young people care most about, again, they're not a monolith, but if I had to rattle off some of the issues we've heard do something members say matter most to them, we've already spoken about health care and kind of safety and well-being, if you will. Um, another key issue young people care about is environmental, um, you know, sustainability and how do we make sure we have a planet that we can continue to inhabit and yeah. is prepared for us and also economic opportunity, right? We're living in a moment of economic uncertainty and more young people are grappling with college affordability or the lack thereof as we navigate a student debt crisis. They're worrying about, you know, a rise in inflation writ large, but not 
a, a matching rise in wages and whether or not they actually will be economically viable and independent. And so as we think about what's at stake, many of those decisions are happening at the state and local level. And so we want young people to know, yes, when the Super Bowl of elections happens in 2024, all eyes, let's all get engaged. Let's all make sure we're doing our part. But it is equally, if not more important, to do your part in the elections in between years to make sure that those policies that you care most about, the ones that motivated young people to march and protest in the streets, to lead um, social media campaigns in support of policy changes, that 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 work really happens in those off-year elections in the state houses and in the local legislative bodies where change can happen, one, more quickly, but two, more directly close and, and closely related to your your home and your pocketbook, if you will. Well, what about a state like Ohio? I know that you have uh, over 90,000 members in Ohio, and tomorrow is going to be a big day for a citizen's vote on co- putting abortion care as part of the state's constitution. Um, and also uh, recreational cannabis as well, right? That's right. And again, you know, this goes if there's a theme happening, right, I think is one consistency from this conversation thus far is there is there are efforts to take away rights from Americans. And we at Do Something don't have a position on those issues. Right. Our role is to be the platform and the hub for young people and their activism. But what we know is that young people are paying attention to ballot initiatives actually as a vehicle for advancing systemic change more rapidly than what might happen in the state legislative house or a local legislative body, if you will. And so that can be a motivating factor for young people to turn out, right? Because young people are incredibly passionate about issues, even when they might be less passionate about individuals, right? And so we really want to make sure young people understand what's on the ballot, that they are engaged and they're going to turn out to vote. What we've seen over the last um, several years is that there's been a, a drop in turnout um, in off-year elections yeah. in Ohio. And so our hope, again, is that young people will remember it isn't the one and done, right? It is not about just casting that first ballot and getting that check mark or that sticker and getting that pat on the back. You actually have to stay engaged between election cycles. And that's not me saying every day you wake up, you've got to be doing something that is civic-minded, though that would make me really happy as the CEO of Do Something and you know, as our work is really grounded <laughs> in that ethos. Yes. But people do need to understand what their civic identity is and then how do they use that to advance change? Because what we're nervous about is that in a moment when, you know, between the 20 uh, 2020 election cycle in the 2024, we'll have 17 million new voters, young voters who are eligible to vote. We want to see all of them registered to vote. We also want to see them all voting that first time, voting again and staying engaged. What we don't want to be the case is that on the heels of record turnout in a off-year election last year, that we have such a substantial drop in the percentage of young people who turn out to vote, because this yeah. is the moment for young people to really make their voices heard, claim their seat at the table, and make sure that they're a part of pushing for the change they truly seek. Well, that's why I, I think it's so great that young people are so engaged on issues like women's reproductive freedom, on issues like decriminalizing cannabis. Um, but what about something like the student loan controversy? Is that the sort of thing? And again, the biggest lie about this is that it's about the government giving people free education. The educations are paid for. It's the government not charging them this insane interest for decades and decades into adulthood. Is student loan debt forgiveness the kind of issue that motivates young people to the polls? That is definitely an issue that motivates our members to the polls, right? And again, I'll just note that our members are 13 to 25-year-olds living in every area code in the United States, and we have members who engage even in 189 countries abroad. What we know to be true is young people, Gen Z and millennials in particular, are really nervous about our economic system and whether it's going to impact their economic mobility, right? And student loan payments coming due has been such a daunting 
a daunting threat to young people as they think about the rising inflation and that their incomes haven't kept up. And so from a recent SNAP poll of Do Something members, 68% of young people felt uncertain about their future economic opportunities after the changes to the federal student student loan relief program. Um, And young people are really concerned about their ability to find quality work, right? Whether they will actually be able to you know, have livable wages, benefits, hours, be able to afford to live, right? 86% of our members told us these were economic blockers for them as they thought about them themselves and their economic prosperity. And so it is an issue that is going to motivate young people to vote because they want to know, great, if I complete this degree and I go through this, you know, academic opportunity, will there be something for me on the other side? Yes. And only 15% of our members said they were confident that they could actually have a job that provided living wage you know, provided them the ability to be satisfied in their work. And so that's a pressing societal issue that I do believe will motivate young people to go out and vote. It's going to be quite a day tomorrow, and it's going to be quite a bellwether for the next year. Denora Gatachu is CEO of DoSomething.org. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you and learn more about your work and the work of Do Something? Thank you so much for the opportunity this evening. So Anytime. young people, everyone can find us on Do Something uh, on all of the social media platforms and our website, as you noted, is DoSomething.org. And you can find me at Denora Gattaccio or at Democracy Ninja. Such a pleasure having you with us. Come back anytime. And thanks for all you are doing for our democracy. This is progress. Progress.